Hello, exceptional people. You are now listening to Change Today, a new podcast about how we can better society. I'm your creator and co-host, Mariam Antone. And I'm co-host, Molly Quatrusi. And today, we will be discussing affirmative action. But first, let's catch up. Molly, how are you doing? Well, today is the fourth day in a row I've tried to weigh the product of my reaction from my lab. And it's just taking a longer time than I anticipated. But that's okay. I'm just hoping we have enough to finish this reaction. I'm so happy that I'm, like, done with all things STEM. (laughs) I never... I did... We both did AP Chem and AP Bio together. Yes. And I remember being in AP Chem, being like, oh, my God, I'm going to be a chemist. I'm so good at this class. I love the challenge. Here I am in college. So thankful I never have to take another (laughs) STEM anything. I don't know how you do it. Sometimes I don't either. But then I remember that it's worth it. (laughs) That's good. Okay, my question for you today is not from a list of 36 questions make you fall in love with me. It's the first time. (laughs) Whoa! (laughs) Instead, I'm going to have to get your reaction because today is November 9th. It's Monday. We now know that Biden is going to be our next president. Yes. So... When originally this episode was supposed to be filmed on November 6th, which is Friday, and the results weren't out yet. Right. And it was so stressful for me and Molly that it was one of the major reasons why we decided to record on Monday instead. Absolutely. So now that we know, how did you feel when you found out, and how do you feel right now? Okay, when I found out, I started crying immediately. Not in a bad way. Like, tears of, like, joy and relief. Because these past four years have been probably some of the most stressful, not just because of school or anything, but just having him in office and every day seeing headlines of him insulting another leader from another country or taking away rights from a minority group. It was just so hard to see that happen constantly every day and feel so powerless that Mm -hmm. I could do nothing about it. And now it's just, like, such a weight off your shoulders. I feel the same way. I also cried. Like, literally, I saw the numbers, and I was like, (gasps) yeah, and just immediately started crying. I was so happy. Because, like, we live in Massachusetts, which is so blue. But we live in red towns. Yes. So a lot of times, like, it feels so hopeless being here, Mm -hmm. even though we're in Massachusetts. So, like, when you see the numbers start coming out and you're like, I live in a red town, like, everyone I know is pretty much conservative. Yes. And you finally see them, like, start shifting in your favor. You're like, oh, my God, like, maybe there is hope, you know? It was definitely, it definitely made me hopeful this year to see that no county turned red in Massachusetts. Which was the first time in, like, I think, like, 20 years. Yes. Or more. Yes, I was so shocked, but in such a good way yeah absolutely because our hometowns both in 2016 weren't just red they were bright red yeah like everybody voted for trump in 2016 pretty much but now that it's been a few days it's the reality setting in and while i'm excited that he is our president instead of trump there's still a lot of work to be done 
because he wasn't my first choice as the nominee. Absolutely. And I really hope that he feels the pressure from especially our generation Mm -hmm. to actually make some progressive decisions when he's in office. Yeah, I agree. Also, because, like, I'm not super certain that he's going to finish his term. Right. Like, (laughs) sorry, but... And then it's like Kamala Harris, and do I like her? Do I not? Yeah. I mean, I have, right. I hated her as a candidate. Oh, me too. Oh, please, no. Like, she, I hope she doesn't win the primaries. She's pretty much as centrist as you can get. Yeah. For someone who's supposed to be left-leaning. Right. And the thing about her is she obviously has a very difficult past. Is exactly. Is it it? She's done a lot of things that are just quite controversial and so just so just questionable as to like why she's even running on the platform that she is right there's certain things that I know that she'll do a great job at like green new deal like I can tell she's all for that she like I think she genuinely believes the things that she says yes when it comes to like defend the police Prison reform, industrial prison prison system. Yeah, that is the stuff that I'm like. You thrive off of that. Yes, you make you've profited for years off of that. Yes, that was like your literally your whole thing. That's how you got started in politics. Yes, profiting off of putting people in jail for marijuana, keeping them in jail, and you know using them for cheap labor. Exactly. So that's why. It's a weird situation. Yes, I'm obviously happy that we have a female vice president mm-hmm. for and the first time ever. Yeah, and, and a black vice president for the first time yes. ever. And um, Indian. And Indian, yeah. Yeah. Which also her Indian politics is another thing that we don't want to get into. Right, it's we don't need to get into that Very questionable as well. But it's, it's an accomplishment, but at the same time, is it enough? Right. And that's how I feel. I feel the same way. And, you know, here's one of the things that I love about the left. And you say this all the time. I, 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 like, pick this up from you. You always say, at least we can, like, look at the past and be like, this this president did this wrong. This president did this wrong. Exactly. And not just from the left side either or just the right, because we do it for both. We do it for our own Mm -hmm. candidates, too. Right. Like, I happily voted for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, but am I... Thrilled about it? Absolutely not. No. I'm like, I'm like yeah, I'm going to have rights tomorrow. Like, yeah. next year, I'm, like, still going to be able to, like, walk around and, like, you know, be a person. Right. Is that enough? Is, like, being allowed to, like, be Exist. alive, like, yeah. good enough? You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> I guess we're taking baby steps. And with that, let's get right into it. Like Miriam said before, the topic we'll be discussing today is affirmative action. So, obviously, what is affirmative action is the first question we have to ask ourselves. It's an active effort to improve employment or educational opportunities for members of minority groups and for women. It began as a government remedy to the effects of long-standing discrimination against such groups and has consisted of policies, programs, and procedures that give limited preferences to minorities and women in job hiring, admission to institutions of higher education, the awarding of government contracts, and other social benefits. The typical criteria for affirmative action are race, disability, gender, ethnic origin, and age. So it's a lot of people, I feel like, think affirmative action is just specifically for race, mm-hmm. but it involves all of those groups of people because it it's for anybody who faces a disadvantage. Yeah, I think 
sometimes people forget that like women is like huge part. Oh yeah. Of, I mean, how many schools have you heard of that used to be all male? Right. You know, and our they, school used to be all male. Yeah, and it's like you kind of need this boost. Exactly. Because how are you going to go from 100% male to expecting there to be an even, not even even, but like a comfortable split? Right. You know? Exactly. These things are kind of needed. And same thing with um, minorities. They weren't allowed in exactly. white colleges either. So there needed to be this boost. This started in 1960s. It, the idea of, of affirmative action was introduced by JFK, but it was later implemented by LBJ. Then during the Reagan era, maybe maybe like four years before or five years before is when conservatives started acting up and, you know, saying, well, race isn't really a problem anymore. It's not what it used to be. Sexism isn't a problem anymore. It's not what it used to be. Um, so during Reagan is kind of when affirmative action started plummeting in, you know, all things useful. People at that point were confused as to why it was even called affirmative action because it really wasn't doing as much as it should have been for, you know, right. 70s and 80s. And then we get into all the lawsuits that have occurred against schools because of affirmative action. Starting off with probably the most notable, which was Alan Backey. And he sued UC Davis because he was denied twice from the school. And he basically said that they have a racial quota that they're trying to fill. So they're letting in minorities over me. Yeah, he went to court with it. Mm -hmm. It went to the Supreme Court and they ruled in his favor. He was let into UC Davis. And the Supreme Court ruled that no quotas would be allowed in admission. They also quoted that past discrimination was not a good enough reason to allow race to be considered in admission. So instead, they opted for the reasoning to be diversity and equality in admissions and in schools and in the workplace. So... In April of 2014, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld a Michigan constitutional amendment banning affirmative action in its policies in state universities. This decision resulted from the case of Fisher versus the University of Texas, which took place in 2013, and had an inconclusive result, which sent the case back to the lower courts with instructions to use strict scrutiny, in air quotes, regarding the use of race in admissions. So for some context, in Texas, admission to state schools is automatically granted to the students who make up the top 10% of their high school. So it's your top performing students. And automatically, they get spots and take up 75% of the spots in these schools. The remaining students admitted, are ba it's based on their academic performance, extracurricular activities, and cultural background and race. So... Abigail Fisher was denied admission to the University of Texas. She wasn't one of those students that was in the top 10% of her class, so she wasn't granted the automatic admission like the rest of them. And she thought it was discrimination because she's white, and students who were of a different race with worse academic records than her, according to her, were admitted into the school. Her legal team argued that this is a violation of the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. What was really important about the Abigail Fisher case is 
kind of who was representing her, which was Edward Bloom. He was a conservative that has a long-standing problem with affirmative action. He has done, I don't even know how many of these cases. And Fisher was supposed to be like, his like breakout role almost. This was what was going to finally end affirmative action for him. But what Fisher and Bloom failed to present in their case was that, like Molly said, Fisher was in the 12th percentile of her school. She didn't make the cut, frankly. And then what they also failed to mention is that hundreds of Black and Latino students who applied to that school with the same or higher grades than Abigail Fisher were not accepted either. And also several white students. Right. So obviously the court, it was easy to dig out her grades. And that was the first thing that was brought to court is that she weren't in the top 10%. But what specifically they tried to ignore was the statistics from the school, which was that hundreds of POCs were not accepted, even if they did better than Fisher. Right. You know, grades are not the only thing taken into account when looking at school admission. Exactly. So like we said, on the lower levels, like the U.S. District Court and the U.S. Court of Appeals, they ruled in favor of the university. And the Supreme Court heard the case but didn't give a definite hearing because if they ruled in favor of Fisher, public and private universities would no longer be able to consider race in admissions as it would have ruled that affirmative action constitutes racial discrimination against white people, which is just a whole nother situation that's Mm -hmm. just not a case. And you can hear more about that in our reverse racism podcast that is previously recorded. Anyways, the schools would not be able to be funded because of the Title VI clause in the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which forbids racial discrimination in all programs that receive federal funding. So pretty much, if the Supreme Court ruled that, yes, this was racial discrimination, the schools would have to get rid of their affirmative action programs, and if they didn't, would lose their funding from the government because they would keep a system that creates racial injustices and that's not allowed yeah that's why it was inconclusive along with the clear lack of evidence that this was actually discrimination right i mean it's with cases like this it's like hard to be like no you didn't get it wasn't because you were white that you didn't get in right because i mean you see an answer and you make your assumption and it's like how how is a school supposed to fight off that assumption exactly like it's kind of, it's a very like he said she said and you can bring in yes. all the numbers that you want but when you lay it out and you say well affirmative action lets in people of color and because she's not a person of color she didn't get in right it's easy to be like oh absolutely that's the reason exactly but when all things are considered that wasn't the case in the gruder versus bollinger and gratz versus bollinger case I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly, but the court ruled that the University of Michigan Law School had the right to consider race as part of the holistic review of an application, but awarding 20 points to minority applications was unconstitutional. So basically what the school was doing is if it had an applicant that came from a minority, any minority, was that they gave them an additional 20 points on their application. I don't think that, I don't know, I don't know how I feel about this one, because 
I feel like that that's not unfair because, like we said, in history, minorities have historically been excluded from education. So it would make sense that they get those 20 additional bonus points. It's not like it's because they are unearned. It's because they were oppressed. It's just because, in my opinion, I think that this was ruled because people were upset mm-hmm. that they weren't getting those points. Yeah. And it's like... And obviously, like... I get it. Your yeah. race is something that you can't control. Right. So an uncontrollable factor is the reason that somebody else is, in quotes, getting ahead. Right. Like, that is bothersome. And honestly, a point system kind of makes me, like... Right? That's why I was kind of unsure how yeah, I felt like about it. uncomfortable. Yeah. To, like, put people... Like, as points. As points. Yeah. I don't like that. It's and I don't weird. think that... I mean, I don't know if 20 points is a lot in the way that they score things. Like, maybe your SAT scores are, like, 100 points based on what you get. Right. So I don't know how substantial this is. I mean, this system is flawed. Yes. I'll give it that. Yes, definitely. But why is race on an application if it's not going to be considered? Exactly. We're going to get a lot more into this when we get into holistic review and what that means. Exactly. But there's just so much to be considered and race is a factor in that, but not in the way that people assume. Right. Which I guess is probably why they ruled it just make it part of holistic review instead of giving additional points. Right. Which makes sense. That I mean, makes hol- sense. Holistic yeah. review, when done correctly, is really what every school should be using. Right. So before I move on to that, we have to talk about the last court case, which was in 2018. And it was against Harvard. And basically, a group of Asian students came out saying that affirmative action was harming them and they weren't being accepted as much as they should be based on their grades. Harvard was less willing to accept Asians because they have a hard quota for Black students. Right. I mean, (laughs) it's funny to think about because it's two minorities going at it. And there's a lot to be said about this case. When we look at the numbers, Asians make up like 20 to 25 percent of Harvard's class within the last like five years. It's been that makeup, 20 to 25 percent. African-Americans within the last five years have made up seven to nine percent. So can you really say that you weren't accepted because they have a hard quota for them. If they make up 14 to 11 less percent of the student body. So the math is a little bit off. Right. And then Harvard, I would say, isn't wrong in that sense. Right. But the other side of the Harvard case is that apparently they were rating Asians on like a personality scale and saying that they were less brave, less confident, less likely to, like, hold a conversation, things like that. On a personality scale, they don't look great. On a future, how are you going to do in life, are you going to be a good leader, whatever scale, sure, you look good. So if Harvard was doing that, which I'm not very clear on, the case is so messy and it's been so long now that I'm not as well-informed as I was in 2018, but if Harvard was doing that, then obviously that's, that's like, horrible. Yeah. You can't just base you somebody's just entire personality deny. off of their race. Yeah. 
But if they're not doing that and Asians are just upset that they're not getting into Harvard. Right. Well, it's Harvard. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a 7% it's, acceptance rate. It's pretty hard to yeah. get into. Not everybody's going to get into Harvard, which yeah. is why it's Harvard. That's, that is a pretty messy case. Absolutely. And I think it's still going on. I don't, because I don't know what the decision was if they made one. Right. So, I mean, just almost two years, because yeah. it started in the fall of 2018. Right. And so, it's, and again, it's a very, like, he said, she said. Yes. Because I, I doubt Harvard is, like, writing in a little notebook, oh, we're going to base this Asian student, they're going to get a five in personality, right. but a 25 in future potential. Right. Like, you know what I mean? It's like a hard, it's like a weird case to be arguing, especially when affirmative action is meant to benefit minorities yeah including the asian minority exactly it's it doesn't discriminate against the minorities that it benefits yeah it's like it's very strange it is very strange you really don't want to think that harvard is doing that Mm -hmm. you really don't want to think that they're saying no not enough personality that's no you're rejected right which also kind of feeds into this idea that Americans have when they hear affirmative action, which is that mm-hmm. black students and exactly. that's it. Which, like we said earlier, no, it's way more than that. It's minorities. It's culture, ethnicity, gender, it's age. It's yeah, and also if you have a disability, it can benefit yeah. you. It's not just regarding race. It's regarding literally any factor that could set you up for discrimination. Mm-hmm. So. Yes. That's why that case, right. <laughs> when I first heard about it, I was like, wait, it's Asians that are like right. going against? Also, Bloom is like heavily invested in this case. I think he's lead prosecutor. Right. Which again, it's like, well, Abigail Fisher didn't work out. So let's take it against the best school in the whole country. And we're going to use another minority because that makes me not look like a bad person. Exactly. If it's minorities pitted against minorities, this is okay. Yeah. Hmm. It really makes you think about the intentions of the case. Yeah. And how valid it really is. It's... Yeah. I understand a minority being upset. Right. Like, I get it. Of course, yeah. But when you choose some a conservative who has been raging against affirmative action for 30 plus years, he's built his entire career... Of of hating affirmative action. Right. It's like, what are you actually fighting against? Exactly. Are you fighting against this case, or are you just trying to take down the system as a whole? Yeah. That's. Which then leads us into affirmative action in practice. Right. So affirmative action is by no means perfect. Absolutely not. There. It's such an arbitrary idea that we're trying to make happen, and it's messy and. Yeah, again, it's like, how do you, how much does race factor in? How much does gender factor in? Exactly. What is too much? Is this person truly still oppressed? It's And if we're not trying to readdress historical injustices, like the Supreme Court ruled in 1978, it's then, and we're trying to create an environment of diversity, well, what is diverse enough? Right. And it's messy. It's not a perfect system. And there's so much to consider. And it's like, how do we consider it all? What systems do we use that are not going to belittle the people that we're trying to help? Right. 
which kind of leads us into holistic review, which we talked a little briefly about earlier, but now we're going to get into some detail on what it actually is. So holistic review refers to mission-aligned admissions or selection processes that take into consideration applicants' experiences, attributes, and academic metrics, as well as the value an applicant would contribute to learning, practice, and teaching. It takes into account a student's experiences, attributes, and academic performance. This is intended to create a rich and unique student body. These methods are applied equitably across a candidate pool. So that means everybody who applied to the school is reviewed in this same exact process. Every single person. And it's used to assess how successful a student will be in school and in a career. Race and ethnicity may be considered with mission-related educational interests and goals associated with student diversity, but the factors previously listed will also be looked at. Holistic review will look at GPA, test scores, class rank, past jobs, extracurriculars, real-life experience, your personal essay, your references, pretty much anything on the application that you applied for, anything you wrote, anything you attached, any question they asked, every single part of it will be considered. And that includes race and gender. Now, holistic review, the whole point of it is that we look at everything. We don't look at one thing first, make our decision based off that, and then it's over. No, it's here are the qualifications. First of all, do you meet them in this respect? Our Average test score on the SAT is a 1250. You got a 1310. Great. Our average GPA is a 3.7, but you got a 3.5. And then we look for a personal essay that we score on a scale of 1 to 10. Our average score is 6. You got an 8. Your test scores are higher and your personal essay is higher. Your GPA is lacking a little bit but this is holistic review and we look at everything. So we're going to say that you make the cut because your other aspects are going to make up for that one not so great aspect. Exactly. Now, we're not saying that one race is better than the other when looking at holistic review. We're saying that one race has always been allowed to go to school, Mm -hmm. has pretty much built these schools around themselves and their interests and another race doesn't have that so we're gonna take that into consideration while we look at their grades their test scores their references their experience so holistic review i mean it also has its flaws i feel like a lot of times schools will preach about diversity and preach about how we want all backgrounds included at our school, but then when the student arrives at the school, they are not treated with that same regard that they were accepted with. And I mean, we go to Stonehill College in 2020, and we literally, what, three weeks ago had a sit-in? Yes. Because of this, you know, idea of division and equality and inclusivity on campus that some faculty think we already have, but the real students at the school who are POCs, we don't feel that same way. So it's like, are we going to listen to these three white men, old white men, or are we going to listen to the students currently going to the school and currently experiencing the atmosphere? So (laughs) that's kind of what holistic review takes into consideration. So 
what I want to point out here, and if you honestly take one thing away from this whole podcast, I hope it's this one sentence. Lesser qualified people do not get into schools or any field of work based solely off of their race. To say that a black person gets into school and they're less qualified just because they're black could not be further from the truth. It's not true. Like we said, every single aspect that is listed in the holistic review is taken into consideration. It's not like it's like, oh, you're black? Well, you're automatically in. That's not the case. Right. You still have to have the GPA. You still have to have the test scores. You still have to have the work experience, the extracurriculars, any other experience that makes you individual and unique. You're not just a number. It's you're a person and we're looking at each aspect. Also, kind of like what we said earlier, in the 1978 case, quotas were banned in schools. Yes. So a school isn't just trying to fill a number of seats with black students. Exactly. That's not their goal. And that goes against everything that Holistic Review, you know, stands for and is, is, is there for. So there are no quotas. There isn't like we need 26 black students or the school is going to get shut down or we're going to lose funding. It doesn't work like that. We're just trying, schools are just trying to be representational of the numbers that we see in America. Yes. Like we said, Harvard has had a six to 9% black undergraduate students for the last five-ish years. America's makeup is 13% African-American. Obviously, those numbers don't match up. And in other schools, it's significantly lower. Just to say that we don't need affirmative action because everything is equal. Well, actually, when we look at the numbers of the U.S. versus in schools, we see that's not true. And then to say that, well, lesser qualified people get in just because of race, we say, well, in the Abigail Fisher case, hundreds of African-American students didn't get in to the same school when they were more qualified than Fisher. So we see that's not true either. Exactly. So please don't fall into that myth that people who are less qualified get accepted because of their race, because it's just not true. And now, for those people who are still not convinced that affirmative action is a positive, let's look at what me and Molly consider to be white affirmative action, starting with legacy students. Now, what is a legacy? A legacy is a child or sibling of a alumni of a school. Ivy League schools, as well as any top school, pretty much if you have a 15% or lower acceptance rate and you are widely regarded as a, an amazing school that is hard to get into, then your school most likely commits legacies at a 2 to 5% higher rate than your actual acceptance rate. So if Harvard's acceptance rate is 7%, then legacies are getting in at 14 to 35%. So currently, 15% of Harvard's undergraduate class is made up of legacy students, while only 8% are Black. And I can guarantee you that not 15% of America has gone to Harvard when we know that 13% of America is black. So when we're talking about, you know, we want everything to be proportional to what is our reality, 
We're not seeing it here. Definitely not. And it's not even just under 15%. Private colleges at almost equal levels to our school Mm -hmm. practice accepting legacy students. I know Marist College does, and I know Providence College is the same way. If your parent or your sibling went there, you are more likely to be accepted than Mm -hmm. a student who is probably, possibly better qualified than you are. And I'm sure that at other private schools, that number, that two to five, is way higher. Right. I'm sure for some, they won't tell you, but it's like probably an automatic acceptance. Yes. So the two to five is specific to these Ivy Leagues, the 15% under acceptance rate schools. But that's not to say that that number doesn't increase as you get to lower tier schools. Exactly. Next, we're going to talk about donors. So, elite families usually outweigh the effects of affirmative action because the parents can give large donations to schools in exchange for their child's acceptance. There's a very popular example of this occurring, and it happened in March of 2019 when it was revealed that Lori Laughlin's daughter did not earn her acceptance into USC, but Lori Laughlin and her husband donated a large amount of money to the school, and just somehow, her daughter was accepted. Her daughter wasn't qualified, and that's the biggest part. She did not earn her acceptance into that school. And it's not just celebrities that do this, it's anybody who's highly wealthy and can pay their child's way into a school. If somebody's parent has a building or just anything named after them, there's a good chance that it was to help their child get into the school. Because mm-hmm. who just has a building named after their parent at, at their college? Right. That, that doesn't just happen. Because we're not just being like, oh, it's the rich. Right. It is the rich, yeah. But let's look at who is rich. Who is the top 1%? Exactly. Who is the top 5%? How many minorities are we seeing up there? How many females are we seeing up there? And that's why affirmative action is why we need it. Exactly. To counteract the effects of the people paying their way into schools. Mm -hmm. Next, we talk about sports. So this is another way that students get into colleges, and it's not always fair. So in some cases, students will have a falsified athletic record, and they'll be photoshopped into, say, crew team or on a picture of them pole vaulting for track. And they never did those sports in their entire life. A student showed up to USC and their advisor came up to them at orientation and asked them about their participation on the track team. And they said, I'm part of the track team. I had no idea. So they were accepted into the school on a track scholarship without ever playing track, participating in track in their entire life. That is a stolen spot from another student. Is just completely unearned. You can't tell me that there's any justification for that. That's just... I mean, the fact that the kid wasn't even in on it. Yeah. The school was like, we really want Tim to come here. Yes. He's coming here. I don't care what I have to do. Like, it's just so weird. It is. Like... Imagine being being in that kid's spot being like, I have to do track now. Are you kidding me? Like, And they're going to go to a track meet and not know how to pole vault at USC? Are you kidding? Like, the whole situation is so comical that it's almost hard to believe that that happened. 
but this is like somebody's real story yes. that they chose to tell. Yeah. Like so odd. And then in kind of the opposite aspect regarding spots taken by athletes. So private colleges will already fill their enrollment spots, typically before they start recruiting athletes. More athletes are recruited usually when enrollment is lower at a private college, as recruitment is an extension of the admissions office, like your coaches and other aspects of the athletic department. They're part of admissions. They're trying to get you to come to the school and play the sport at the school. So an athlete is not taking a spot of a student, an athlete that earned their position on the team. Of course, the kid for the track team who never ran track in their life, that is a stolen spot. But an athlete is not taking a spot from a more qualified student. So that's another example of a statement that white people will like to say is that that black athlete has taken the spot of my child who is more qualified as a student. That's not true because I know student athletes have to maintain a specific GPA in order to keep playing on the team. And also when we look at sport admission, sure, it's easy to say, well, your basketball team or your football team is 70% black. Sure, our soccer team and our ice hockey team and our swimming team is 80% white. Right. So, I mean... I think there's like a whole other issue when it comes to sports and schools and oh, totally. teachers and advisors are much more lenient when they know you have, you know, a right. player on the team, especially when it's like an all-American school or a school that's known to put people in the leagues. Exactly. But that doesn't mean that, first of all, that they're taking away spots from yeah, anyone. Yeah, that they didn't earn it in the first place. Or that black students are being recruited more than white students. Exactly. Now, we have laid out, you know, all the problems of affirmative action plus problems of what we call white affirmative action, which is, you know, these recruitments, um, legacy students, donor parents, um, all of that. But we haven't talked about why we need affirmative action. Like we said, during Reagan's era, the idea was well, racism isn't as bad. Sexism isn't as bad. So we no longer need it. And now, 50 years later, it's easy to say, oh, it's definitely not as bad. Racism, sexism definitely are not as bad as they were during, during the civil rights movement. But the biggest thing that I want to point out is that diversity is important for any race. Research shows that diversity experiences at college have positive effects on students' physic- civic growth and their healthy participation in a globalized world. That just means that you, as say you're a white student and you go to school and you have any minority in your classes, you can learn so much from that one person Mm -hmm. that you never knew before. Because as a white person, you probably have grown up in a sheltered life. Like there's not a lot of experiences that Not to say that your life hasn't been hard, obviously, Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of things you haven't experienced that someone from a minority has. Right. And especially if you're living in a suburb. Right. If you're white living in a suburb, you're like a middle class family. Right. Your experience is the same as the majority of America. So you need to be introduced to these other factors 
or else how are you supposed to get on in the real world when you no longer live with your parents in a suburb going to the public school with the same 100 to 300 people right exactly um so obviously that's one of the biggest reasons that affirmative action is needed but then we also just have what we talked about earlier which is proportional representation in these schools i mean with a history of oppression women weren't allowed into higher education for such a long time you know years and years and years after state schools like harvard were created and same thing with minorities they were segregated until the 60s so significantly longer than women were exactly i was gonna say stonehill was created in 1948 and it was still all men at that point yeah and that's not to say that schools just made them you know put the title of all men right just because they could exactly but that's the point we're trying to make is it took a really long time for a women and b minority groups to actually be able to enter these colleges and get or higher education Mm -hmm. so having representation in these schools is very important just to make up for the fact that for so long they couldn't and also just so you're getting a realistic view of the country you live in right if you're going to an all-male all-white school and then you're put out into the world and you're like a businessman and on one day you have to travel outside the country and you realize, hey, my culture's not the only one that exists, you're probably not going to do great in that deal. It's or going whatever. to be shocking. Yeah. It's, it's going to negatively affect your career. Right. When you are so sheltered that you don't know anything that's going on outside of your realm of existence. Exactly. So having representation, just having like <laughs> 13% of a school be black, which I don't think like should be Right. I don't think that's enough. Like, but... I mean, first of all, like, the fact that we're not even reaching these numbers is right. so sad. Currently, Black and Latino students are underrepresented are underrepresented in vast majorities of colleges and universities by 20%. Wow. So we have affirmative action currently, although I would say that it's lacking greatly. We have it. And we're still seeing underrepresentation in schools, let alone in the workplace, which is a whole different story. Oh where these numbers, I'm sure that 20% is 40%, or, you know, it's going to be significantly higher. And we also see that with schools that have effectively banned affirmative action, we're seeing low rates of POC admissions and high rates of POC dropouts. So what does that mean? It means that without this diversity, without this inclusiveness, this equality on campuses, these students feel like they're either not getting an education that works for them or that they can relate to, or they feel unsafe, unhappy on a campus where nobody looks like them, nobody speaks like them, nobody has any shared experiences as them. Right. Honestly, like, that is such a hard life to live as a Middle Eastern, which is such a small portion of, you know... Right. The U.S. living in the suburbs. I felt that all the way. Like, I couldn't just go to school and tell my friend that, oh, we just made fitir at home and it took hours and it was so exhausting and my arms are killing me from doing all this kneeling. They're going to be like, first of all, what the hell are you talking about? Exactly. You know, (laughs) like, 
you know, not having someone, not having a group of people that you can, you know, share this experience with, having an education system, education system that is built against you. Exactly. Where the books that you're taught are written by someone not of your race. Right. And are portraying people of another race to be the heroes, even though they were the villains in your story. Exactly. It's so detrimental to your education, which is another reason why affirmative action is so important. Right. Without it, I mean, first of all, these students aren't even being accepted, which goes to show that racism still does exist in the country. And second of all, it's gotten so bad that people of, of color don't feel comfortable going to schools anymore. Right. Or they're not succeeding because they're literally set up to fail. Exactly. It's not right. If you're genuinely trying to learn about this and you don't know where your stance is and this podcast um, gave you, you know, some information but not everything that you needed, please feel free. Actually, we encourage you to go listen to our white privilege podcast yes. and our reverse racism podcast. Because without having a history and a knowledge of systems that currently exist in America that are meant to benefit the majority, right? this doesn't seem necessary. So here are some of the sources we use while putting this episode together. And again, we strongly encourage you to look through some of these if you have the time. So first... Affirmative Action in University Admissions from journalistresource.org. So you don't think affirmative action in college admissions is still necessary? This scandal shows it is. Valerie Strauss from the Washington Post. The Britannica Definition of Affirmative Action. Holistic Review from aamc.org. Chapter 7 of So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijeoma Aluo. Harvard Admission Statistics. And if you don't have time to read, you know, an entire chapter book or a whole essay or journal, um, you can check out Hassan Minhaj's Patriot Act on Netflix. Um, I believe season one, it was either the first or the last episode was about affirmative action. And it talked about um, Ed Bloom and the Harvard case, Abigail Fisher, Holistic Review, all of the things that we touched on today. You can also, I believe that Crash Course did a video on YouTube as well. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope you'll join us next week. As always, um, we just want to let you know that you are loved and you are appreciated. And if you are doing anything to, you know, be better and to help others who are in need of it or less fortunate than you, then you're doing great things and you should be proud of yourself and you are absolutely appreciated. So don't get too down. Nobody can change the world on their own. We definitely can't do it. Um, And we don't expect you to. So keep your head up high and know that me and Molly are very appreciative of you and your efforts. And don't don't forget forget that that there is always hope hope for change today. today.